device on a tablet on your phone and turn with me please to the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke and Luke chapter 2 and verse 39 Luke chapter 2 verse 39 we're going to read to the end of this chapter down to verse 52 Luke chapter 2 in verse 39. And this is the word of God. And when they, that being Mary and Joseph, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I invite you to keep your Bibles open as we look uh, at this passage together this morning. First words are important And we all know that to be very, very true in our lives. We all know that the opening remarks offered after a particularly significant event are crucial. Whatever the circumstance, if it's main stage, public, or if it's closed and personal and individual. This is particularly heightened, I'm sure you'll agree with me, once it comes to the the remarks, the the first words that come from a leader. You may think of the words given by Winston Churchill when when Germany announced defeat to the Allies and his speech that was broadcast across the radio and television. Or maybe you think of the first words after the inauguration of a president are the words offered by a king or someone in power who has come to reign. 
Though you may think something a bit more individual, a bit more personal, a bit more closer to home when you think of, of first words, maybe the words that, that you ha- have heard, words that have came to you after receiving maybe potentially painful news or joyful news, words that have offered you comfort or maybe words that have caused distress. First words are important. For those of us that that are parents, I'm sure that you can recall the the first words of of your children. Maybe you know what your first word was and for for mums and dads it's the the great challenge and competition to make sure your child says mummy or daddy first so that you can have bragging rights first words are important and what we have before us as we've considered already this morning Luke chapter 2 is the first ever recorded words of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. Quite remarkably, this is actually the, the only account that we have in the four Gospels that recall an event, a time of the childhood of Jesus. We have the, the birth narratives in, in Matthew and Luke, John and Mark don't include those, and then almost immediately we jump to Jesus at age 30. Luke is the only gospel author to record any events of Jesus' childhood. And here it is before us in Luke chapter 2 as we have read. And this morning what we're going to do is very simply is we're going to sift through this, this passage. And then we're going to come to those words, those famous first words of the boy Jesus at the temple in verse 49. We're going to pause at that and we're going to consider those words. And then we'll take time at the end to consider the response particularly given by Jesus' mother, Mary. So let's begin our time sifting through this, mass, this, this, mass, this passage. What are we to, to make of this rather strange event? And I suppose we have to call a spade a spade. Maybe we're very familiar with this passage. We, we, we are aware of its existence. We've heard it before. But once we, if we try to come at this afresh, we have to admit that this is a very strange and a unique passage. And there's a lot of questions that, that spring to our minds, that flood our thoughts as we, we come and we recall this event as we've read it this morning. It's an event that does spark much conversation and indeed conclusions surrounding the actions and the words of Jesus as, as a child. First, one of those first things that come to our mind is, well, it was Jesus' disobedience. It naturally arises in our minds as we, we see Jesus not returning with his parents. Is this Jesus, supposedly the, the sinless son of God, being disobedient as a child? We may read this passage in such a way that we sort of read Jesus' tone of voice as some sort of cheeky little boy who has put his, his parents through their worst nightmare, don't we? There's a temptation to do that. On the flip side, what about Mary and Joseph? Should we point blame at them? How in the world, as, as good parents, could they travel a full 24 hours journey away from Jerusalem towards their home? and not know that their, their one and only son was with them? How 
could they do that? Surely um, the equivalent of child line would have been rang uh, during those days. But we don't want to immediately jump to, to those conclusions, but we would do well to take time to consider this narrative and this story carefully. And to do that, we need to know what's going on. What's going on? Earlier in chapter 2, Jesus has, was at the temple, but he was at the temple as a baby. And the, everything according to the law of the Lord had been performed, as we read in verse 39. And they went back to their hometown of Nazareth as a family. And then, in the space of a few verses, 12 years pass And Jesus, who has, as we've read in verse 40, has grew and became strong and he's filled with wisdom and the favour of God was upon him, is now back at the temple again. But this time, obviously, not as a baby, but as a young boy, as a 12-year-old boy. Twelve years he has spent in Nazareth. We really don't know anything about those years at all. But now Jesus and his mother and father are back at the temple. And why are they back? Well, they're back as we read in verse 41. It was their custom every year to return to the temple, return to to Jerusalem, the spiritual home of, of God's people, the Jews, to partake in a week of feasting, the week of the feast of the Passover. This was a significant event for the entire family, indeed the entire Jewish people, the people of God. The feast of the Passover recalled recalled God protecting his his people and literally passing over their houses during the, the tenth and final plague that came to them as they were in captivity in Egypt. Read about this in Exodus 12. And this was a a keystone event as it signaled the end of their captivity and Pharaoh's stubbornness towards the Israelites. And through this particular event, this tenth and final plague, God's people were released from their captivity and and marched towards the promised land, which would take time under the leadership of Moses. It was a, a phenomenal event, and any good Jew would know it and would celebrate and rejoice in remembering this, hence why they would come together to remember it and feast. And as a good Jew, Joseph went every year. It was his custom. Think of the righteousness of, of Joseph. Don't know much about him. We know he's a righteous man. Here is a perfect demonstration of an evidence of it. And possibly this was not the first time that Jesus has been to the temple to celebrate the feast of the Passover, though we don't know exactly if that is true. But potentially, this may not have been the first time Jesus was here for this feast. He could well have been accustomed to this, this, this journey, this traveling of days to this week in Jerusalem. And furthermore, which is really crucial to understand this passage, is that, that Jesus is a 12-year-old boy. Right? For us, we, that might mean absolutely nothing to us. But within the context of Judaism, this was highly significant. This would have been the, the last year Jesus would have arrived to, to this particular feast as, as a 12-year-old boy before his 13th birthday, 
And that was the year, in their eyes, that a boy would become a man on their 13th birthday. This was part of their custom. And as we read, the feast comes to an end. And Joseph and Mary, well, as we've thought about, that they set off with their, their traveling group containing their, their relatives and acquaintances. This has been a fairly large, sizable group. And they, they make their way back home. The week's over with and they make their way back home. And a full day passes until they re- realize Jesus isn't there. A full day passes and they don't know. They, they, it suddenly dawns upon them, where's Jesus? Where is our son? And depending on uh, sort of how you view this passage, maybe you're very, you might get frustrated and you're like, how dare you squint your eyes and you think this is terrible parenting. Or maybe we are sympathetic and we can sympathize with, with this couple as maybe you have experienced something similar uh, to this, the, the dread and the fear that must have, have came over them. Maybe you, you've could I say, misplaced your child, you've, you've lost your child, whether that be uh, on holiday or maybe simply at Rushmere or a shopping centre. Uh, and whether that's for, for 30 seconds, 10 minutes, or a couple of hours, there's an anxiety that comes over you that, that cripples you. Or maybe for those who, who aren't parents, who haven't had that experience, maybe you, you've, you've got lost or you've uh, misplaced a friend, you don't know where they are. And you, for those moments, until you find them, you're, you ultimately, automatically think the worst, don't you? You always think the worst. The anxiety is crippling. But let me suggest that this actually isn't a case of parental neglect. I said these groups were, were fairly large. They were close-knit communal groups. And really, children would have sort of weaved in and out of, of different groups made reference that relatives were there so Mary and Joseph was there and Jesus may have just joined with their cousins Mary and Joseph are happy with that and they think well surely he's with, with them there wouldn't be uh, there would, some of the family will, will, will have him but then the, the realisation sinks in Mary and Joseph quickly return to Jerusalem after a further two days they find Jesus back in Jerusalem and where do they find him? But they find him in the temple. And what is he doing? As every normal 12-year-old boy, not. He's quizzing the, the Jewish teachers. Again, this is a very unique and strange passage, isn't it? Jesus isn't playing in the dirt. He's not kicking ball with his mates in Jerusalem. But he's in the temple quizzing the Jewish teachers And we read that they are amazed. They are amazed at this 12-year-old boy from Nazareth and his understanding. And then we read verse 48, which is the response of his parents. Read it with me in Luke 2. It says, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And really we would expect nothing less. Mary's maternal instinct kicks in. And she's upset. She tells Jesus exactly what they've went through. They're distressed. For all they know, they think Jesus has been kidnapped. Or even worse, that he is dead. 
And she challenges Jesus rightly, coming from the overflow of emotion in her heart. How could you do this? And to be honest, if, if we read something along the lines of, of, of Mary saying, Oh, well, there you are, Jesus. Uh, come on along. We'll go back home. Well, I think we'd be slightly concerned, wouldn't we? There's a relief once we read of her, her distress and her honesty and how she challenges Jesus as any good mother would. And then we get the first recorded words of Jesus, which will be our focus in verse 49. And his response is this. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Unsurprisingly, we are able to think of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' first words, a response to a question, is with a question. This would be a hallmark feature of his interactions that are recorded particularly with the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus will reply with questions, with another question to probe deeper. And he does that here. He starts as he means to go on. But we must hear his answer to his mother in a gentle, compassionate tone. This isn't the response of a a disgruntled, sort of frustrated, squinted-eyed child to, to his parents. But there's genuineness and integrity contained within these words from Jesus. For Jesus, we sort of put um, our, our feet in his, his shoes, or better said, his sandals in this day and age. We see that Jesus will, will there's a bit of confusion for him. Surely, of, of all people, his mother and father would have known of who he was. They would have knew that he was no ordinary boy. They would have knew of, of what was said about him. They would have knew that what this, this, what they, where they found him would not have been really that strange. They would have recalled the, the events surrounding his birth. How his father received a dream. How the angel Gabriel visited Mary. Why he's even called Jesus and what that meant. And, and as Jesus was, was growing up, he was realizing in greater clarity who he was and what the rest of his life looked like. But what are we to make of the second half of the, his reply? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And note what Jesus has just said. This is Captain Obvious stuff, but just note, he has just called the temple father's house and what he is asserting as a 12 year old boy is that God is his father therefore making him the son of God and we can't, we can't overlook, we can't undermine we can't sort of gloss over how shocking, how controversial how, how radical that this claim is, the first words of, of Jesus in the whole of the Old Testament the, the phrase, my father, is nowhere to be found. This is the first instance in scripture, and it comes from the mouth of Jesus. In fact, to really extend and underline this, this point and this fact, God, as, as father, is actually only referenced 14 times in the Old Testament. And in every single instance, it is in reference to, to the nation 
and never to an individual or person. But now, when Jesus comes onto the scene in, in Luke chapter 2 as a boy, and in his very first recorded words, he makes the, the personalized claim that God is his Father. And fast forward 18 years when he would begin his public ministry, the, the claim that, that God was his Father was a keystone feature of what he would teach and preach. And we, we, we simply just cannot miss the obvious here. Right from, from the onset, right from the, the very beginning, particularly the, the gospel author, Luke, is telling his readers. And more than that, what Jesus is saying is that he is the Son of God and that God is his Father. There's no two ways about it. There's, there's, there's nothing, there's not anything else. There's no, Jesus is, is a good teacher. That he is a, he is a wise man. That he's just another prophet. As well and good as those things are, it is categorically clear that what Jesus is saying as a 12 year old boy and what Luke is saying in his gospel is that Jesus, his identity is clear. This is God's son, even this 12 year old boy in this very unique passage, this is God's son. And Jesus would not shy away from that fact and telling that. And this is the particular claim that he was God's son, that he knew his father in a very unique and personalized way. This was the very reason that he would be crucified on a Roman cross. One year until he would enter manhood. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew he was God's son. More than that, he knew what lay ahead of him. And he stayed true to that task of, of being about his, his father's business, as it's translated, maybe if you have the, the authorised version before you, the King James Version, it translates this, that not the father's house, but the father's business. He stayed behind in the temple to ask the teachers the questions that filled his mind. And if we could just have a brief moment of, I don't know, sanctified imagination. We don't know this to be true, but just go with me in this. Just think of that moment. Think of Jesus as he only has the the Old Testament before him. And he studied it as as a young boy. And he's come into these passages that prophesy about one that's to come. Think about Jesus reading Isaiah 42 and forward. Think about the suffering servant. I could just imagine Jesus, as he thinks about these things, he said, that's me. He's talking about me. Then he comes to this situation. He's in the temple with these, these, these teachers, these well-versed religious leaders comes to them, asks them, maybe asks them, this man of sorrows that we read about in Daniel, do you know who that, who, who is that? Who's that going to be? Who do you think that's going to be? What's that, what's that person going to be like? And maybe they didn't even know that person was before them. What a wonderful moment that would have been as Jesus asks him and, and they're left amazed with his understanding. Maybe Jesus was, was telling them who he was. We, don't, we simply do not know. And what we are to take away from this 
is that Jesus was so committed to his task of being obedient to his father, to being about his, his father's business, to being at his father's house, and to fulfilling the, the father's plan, that even at the tender age of 12, he was wholly set on completing it. He was wholly devoted to it. And for those of us that, that believe, who have saving faith in Jesus, let me just share with you and bring to you the Saviour as a mere boy. Here is, is your Saviour as a 12-year-old boy, utterly devoted to the task of fulfilling the Father's plan of redemption, of salvation, of, of living the life that none of us simply could ever live and then would know that he would die the death that we simply could not die. And for those of us here today that maybe do not believe yet, who do not share in the saving faith in Jesus, would you consider, would you marvel at this Savior Jesus? Would you look to the Son of God, see his perseverance, see his his commitment to your salvation and offering it to you? Jesus is he's not far from our circumstances. He's not aloft. He's not like many of the other deities who, who seem aloof, who seem far-fetched. But here's Jesus coming into our day and age who comes in to take our flesh and is so totally devoted that he lives and grows up as, as a child. But even in those moments, is completely committed to his task. He's not a saviour that is, is lackluster or apathetic but is totally devoted to offering you salvation for your sins. The fact that he would leave the splendor of heaven to be clothed in flesh, it's not a small undertaking. It was a burdensome task, but yet yet he did it for the sake of your soul. Would you trust in this committed and faithful Savior, if you haven't already? Well, very briefly, this passage has just a few other things to to teach us and really to remind us about Jesus before we consider Mary. We see clearly in this passage, actually, the humanity of Jesus. We read of of Jesus as a boy growing and becoming strong. He lived, grew up just like any one of us. He endured all the ups and downs of being a child and then becoming an adult. And we think about the the mind-blowing reality that the Son of God, he left the glory of heaven and he came and took on flesh. And, and God the Father, He didn't send Jesus at the, the age of, of 30 and then just sort of teleport Him, transport Him down and parachute Him down from heaven into earth and then, right, go ahead, start your ministry. But Jesus goes through all that we have went through and then He begins His ministry at the age of 30. And this, this singular story of Jesus as a boy reminds us once again the glorious plan of redemption. The one who would save his people had to be like his people. And Jesus bears flesh. He's he's born in obscurity, grows up in a town that's not well regarded, begins his ministry at 30, lives in poverty, associates with all the outcasts, and then dies a criminal's death. We've sang these words over the last month as we've sang many carols in, in December past, once in Royal David City. And the verse says this, He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all, 
and his shelter was a stable, and his cradle was a stall, with the poor oppressed and holy, lived in earth our Saviour holy. And here's the, the identity of this boy yet again at the temple. He's fully human, but yet fully God. But we read verse 52, and we read this, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. And we may subtly or maybe subconsciously get a little bit nervous or a little uncomfortable. Jesus is God, fully divine. How could he increase in wisdom? The implicit point is that states, does that mean Jesus was at some point not wise or lacking in wisdom? We need to remember that that Jesus is a child. Yes, he's fully human, but yet he's he's fully without sin. This actually refers to a picture of, of the perfect development of Jesus as a human. Jesus grew as a child And he learned the many things that you and I would learn. Just think about this. Jesus learned how to to put on shoes, put on sandals. He learned how to to help his parents at home. He learned how to to tell time and to know the difference between morning and evening. He learned how to say please and thank you. His development as a human just didn't happen overnight took time yet this all occurred sinlessly and that is the mystery isn't it we have a perfect demonstration of this actually before us in this passage as immediately Jesus submits to his parents and returns with them and what's actually concealed in in our English translations that's in the original is that he continued to submit he continued to obey you know, Jesus didn't sort of shrug his shoulders and then just go, right, okay, I'll go with you, mom and dad. But he actually continues to submit to them that he would live a life, a further 18 years of submission to them. This was not a one-time event. But Jesus submitted. He honoured his mother and father. We, we can't fully grasp the, the vastness of the dual nature of Jesus, that he's both fully God and fully human, but we can simply marvel at it. A marvel is one way of how we would, we would summarize the response of his mother. And let's consider the pondering mother, the example of Mary, as we close. There's something very special about Mary contained within the Gospel of Luke. Part of that is there's no doubt that a lot of the evidence, the, the first-hand accounts and witnesses that that Luke would have gathered and compiled would have came from Mary herself. And that's very clear as we have this 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 event recorded to us. No doubt Mary shared this event to Luke and he put it in his gospel accounts. She's probably the most notable character in the gospel outside of Jesus and the disciples. Twice Luke tells us that Mary treasured the things of Jesus in her heart. Read that in verse 19 and as we've read in verse 51. But there's 12 years between those verses and those events, though both of them are in the temple. 
Mary is still treasuring up the things of her son in her heart. And this was again a reoccurring activity. Again, it's this idea of continuation. Mary did not forget, but she pondered over these things. As one commentator says, she, she did not forget, though she did not understand. His mother kept all these, things, these sayings in her hearts. One of the example Mary leaves us. She demonstrates an, an honourable way to respond to Jesus. Even though her and Joseph are left fairly confused at the response of their son in this event, she continues to recycle and go over all that has occurred surrounding the birth and the life of her son. She's prone not to wander, but she's prone to, to ponder and consider the, the prophecies, the life, the words, the actions of her son. Mary doesn't jump to conclusions. She's not irrational. But Mary speaks to those of us who struggle with not having everything squared away, doesn't she? No doubt, confusion, questions arose in her mind. But yet she believed. That raises an important matter on what true faith is for us. Our faith is not based solely on the veracity, the extent, the, the passion, but solely on the object of our faith. We're called to, to have authentic faith that, that depends, that leans on God, not a faith that, that is based totally and wholly on our intellectual ability to comprehend literally everything or that we demand an answer for everything. And for us that surely must liberate us as we think of our own intellectual ability and realize so much confuses us and so much is we, we do not understand. But our minds are, are, have this weight of burden lifted from us. That God does not demand us to know every single facet about every single doctrine of every single part of his book and who he is. But he calls us to have faith and we're freed from the burden of having to know literally everything and to grasp everything. Though it is good and wise to want to know and deepen our understanding. It's a glory and a relief Christianity is not some theological examination. But God calls us to have faith and to trust in him first and foremost. Mary treasured the things of, of Jesus and she continued that process. And it's no surprise that we, we, we see her in the pages of scripture right at the very end of his, her son's life. The cross and the tomb. Luke, and indeed God, doesn't want us to worship Mary. That's the last thing she would have wanted. But we can replicate and emulate her wonderful example. Her thoughtful and pondering faith. Uh, and maybe this one you might thought you're going to get a sermon on, on New Year's resolutions. I'm sorry if I've disappointed you with that. But as we do think of a, a new year, think of... 365 days or 364 days before us. What a wonderful thing we could start to incorporate into our lives as we 
consider pondering Jesus as Mary did, treasuring who he is, what he said, the life Jesus lived, and what Jesus has accomplished. Now we would allow our hearts time, patience, soak all of that in, realizing that this will not happen overnight. Let me end with conclude with two quotes from Christopher Ash, who's an English Bible scholar, he says this relating to these verses Jesus cannot be understood like, like a theorem he cannot simply be weighed in the balances of evidence there's something so deep and wonderful about the person of Jesus that a lifetime of pondering will not suffice We can both know him deeply and marvel that we cannot comprehend him totally. There's something so precious about Jesus and all he brings to us that we can never treasure him enough. And for those of us, maybe we've been Christians a couple of years, maybe we have loved and followed Jesus our whole lives. There's still an eternity of treasuring Jesus that lies ahead of us. Jesus is our King, our Lord, and our Savior. He is matchless. And there's so much that we have to ponder over and to glory and to marvel and to give him our worship for what he has done for us. And our prayer today would be that this year and for the rest of our years and days that we would ponder over Jesus and that we would make it a lifetime event. Amen.